0: I was studying and I read this article about the change of the railroad being brought to the United States, the first railroad, and this is back in 1829, and there was a letter actually written from Martin Van Buren, the governor of New York, to President Jackson. He says this, as you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles an hour. By engines, which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, starting fires to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speeds. Yeah, I like how I use the God card there. Like, let's just bring God into this. God never intended us for, to go, for us to go 15 miles an hour. You know, we, we resist change because in the back of our mind we know that it means a loss of control. We know that this means a lack of comfort for whatever period of time this is gonna be. We resist change because of the uncertainty and the uneasiness of where this is going and the future that it holds. And so when we have these feelings of resisting change, we often become people who resent the change resent people who have caused the change, resent the circumstances that have caused the change, or, or even we'll go as far as to rebel against the change. And we'll seek to sabotage that change in whatever way possible. We all wrestle with change when we're met with a lack of control, a lack of comfort, a worry and an uncertainty, and a feeling in our gut about the future. And these things begin to pile up, and we either submit to the change or we resist it and we even seek to rebel with sabotage. Is this not what we do about our relationship with God? When God seeks to bring about a change in our lives spiritually and then it begins to play itself out physically, we begin to feel a lack of control, a lack of comfort, the uncertainty of the future. And because things are not necessarily going to our plan, but they're going to His plan, we sometimes will seek to sabotage the change. With rebellion in the flesh. You know, I say these verses are super personal to me because they really were the catalyst of me going into ministry, but that change was not easy. I decided I would enlist myself into a Christian college and I would get a pastor's degree, which I had said I'd never do. So I'm now at a college that I'd never wanted to go to. And now I'm taking these classes, and at some point I began to resist. So much so that I remember going and speaking with admissions and dropping out of college for a period of time and then trying to change my major to something else. But God was pursuing the change. The thing we get into here is where I'm going to read the first three verses. Now, we've covered a chapter and a chapter and a chapter, and now I'm going to slow it down to three verses. Is that Jesus wants to bring about a change in your heart and in your life. Not only a change, but he wants to transform you from the inside out. He wants to take you from darkness to light, from death to life, from sin to salvation. And he wants us to not resist, but to lay ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It is our spiritual act of worship. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that through the indwelling presence of your spirit and the eternal word that you've given us, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would transform us, that you you would place on us a challenge today to change that we cannot easily shake, but we are drawn more and more back to the altar to lay our lives down before you. Father, if there's someone here today or someone listening who has never come to a point of faith where they have laid themselves completely at your disposal, I pray that they would do that today, that they would say a simple prayer, I am all yours. Father, we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. First thing, the Christian life is one of sacrificial response. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The therefore is therefore a reason. So why is the therefore therefore? Well, we've come to a point where Paul has been laying out week after week after week or verse after verse after verse and chapter after chapter after chapter the sovereignty of God and his purpose for mankind and how he is working out all things for his glory. And so we kind of have to go back and say, okay, well, considering all of these things that we've been talking about since the first week of April, why do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, because number one, Romans chapter one, man's gross sinfulness. We are met with the truth, number one, that we are a fallen people. We are sinful, and we are rebellious, and we are making up ways to sin, right? Martin Luther, in his commentary on this, says, For although they know and perceive every day that there is a God, um, still their nature outside of grace is in itself so evil that they neither thank him nor honor him, but inflict blindness on themselves and without ceasing fall into worse evils, "...until after practicing idolatry, they commit without shame the most abominable sins and every vice, and moreover do not rebuke them and others." That sin is so rampant in mankind that it is now becoming approved of in the lives of others." He goes on in chapter 2, man's hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Well, you're without excuse, oh man, because you do the very same things that were mentioned in chapter 1. You just hide it with hypocrisy and self-righteousness. So he then attacks the religious people of, look, you sin just as much as the heathen does. And so you just have figured out how to religiously hide it. So chapter 3 all of mankind is sinful. Therefore, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what can we do? If we cannot be good enough, then we must be justified some other way than by the law. It's justification by faith. And so we see that Abraham was justified by faith. This has always been the way that God justifies people. And so how do you have faith? Well, there has to be faith in someone other than ourselves, which is Jesus Christ, the second Adam. He's no longer born under Adam. He is He is the second Adam, meaning that our headship has moved from Adam to Adam. To him. So he was born of a virgin. He was born of the seed of the woman. He was the promise since Genesis. And he is not born under sin. So he lived a righteous life the entire time. He was the perfect sacrifice. He laid his life down for those who would believe in him so that they too could have his righteousness imputed to them. Isn't that amazing that then we get to this idea that, well, we are so united with Christ, chapter 6, that we have died to sin. We, we are now totally die, like dead to sin. Through faith, we're dead to sin. We're united with Christ and we're risen to newness of life. This is the picture of baptism that you saw this morning, that we are now fully immersed. And then chapter 7. But there's still sin. We're still struggling. It may no longer reign over us, but it is constantly trying to get at us. There's all kinds of temptations and failures. And and just as soon as I think I'm doing what's right, I get knocked down again. I I just keep failing over and over and over. And then chapter 8, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) That even though sin is still something you have to battle with, you're not condemned by that sin. He has covered that sin. It's such a remarkable thing. And then he ends the chapter with, not not only are you not condemned, but you're never going to be separated from the love of Christ. He holds you and he's not going to let you go. And so then Paul gets into the three chapters that really make your head spin a little bit. He's just going to talk to you about the sovereignty of God and his salvation of those that he has called. And so you've got God's sovereignty over salvation. Then you have man's responsibility in that salvation to respond with confession and belief and then to go and to tell others about the gospel and then we see that even in God's election of Israel and the nations that he is grafting us in for a people all to himself. And we cannot even fathom this. This is beyond our understanding. So therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. If he's done all this, there's only one way to respond. is to give your whole life to him. Chapter 12 is the transition from the doctrinal portion of the epistle to the application portion. And I know you've been waiting for the application for months. R.C. Sproul, now that his readers have been shown the true gospel justification, sanctification, the doctrines of grace and election, perseverance, and the sweetness of God's providential care, Paul wants his readers to consider the implications and applications. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The idea to present your bodies is to set aside, to surrender, to give something over to another, to relinquish your grip. And in context, to place ourselves at the full disposal of God. In light of all that God has done on your behalf, the salvation, the mercy, the grace, the love, the kindness, the the drawing you in. He says, present your bodies, relinquish your grip on your own life and your own control and say, I'm completely at your disposal. I'm going to ask you right now, have you come to a point in your life where you have done that? My life right now is a blank check to you, God, no matter what you say and no matter what you want me to do, I am completely at your disposal for your glory for the rest of my life. That's that's a remarkable statement of faith. This is what we see even in Isaiah chapter 6, 4 through 8. You know, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, up. holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is it. I was lost. I was lost. I was given salvation. My sins were atoned for. And my only response is to say, here I am. Send me. I'm all yours. I am, I am presenting my body to you. Fully, fully yours. Present your bodies, as A.W. Tozer put it. That is, present your vessel. That must come first. A vessel that has not been presented will not be filled. God cannot fill what he cannot have. Present your vessel. I think God wants us to be intelligent. He wants us to come to Him. If you were in a bread line in some poor country and you stood back and would not present your cup, you would not get any milk. He goes on, and if you did not present the plate or basket, you would not get any bread. If you will not present your personality, you will not get the fullness of the Spirit of God. Are you ready to present your body? With all of its functions and all that it contains, your mind, your personality, your spirit, your love, your ambitions, your all, this is the first thing. It can be a simple act, presenting the body. Are you willing to do it? What a strong appeal Paul makes. I appeal to you. Present your bodies. Get to a point where you say, here it is. Every, every bit of me, my mind my ambitions, my wants, my desires. This becomes the mission statement of every believer. To the believer, this is it, my body for his glory. You could sum it up like that. This is my body for his glory. I am no longer my own. It is my body for his glory. And I want you to think about that statement the next time you're you're presented with a temptation. The next time you're presented with a temptation to use your body in a way that God does not want you to use it, my body for his glory is the decision I'm about to make, bring glory to God is the words that I'm about to say, bring glory to God. What an interesting thought that we are to first present our bodies before we do anything else. God, I'm completely yours. It reminds me of the old hymn, Take My Life. You remember the words to this song? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always, only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all to thee. The call of every believer is to present our bodies as living sacrifices. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A living sacrifice constitutes an ongoing sacrifice of self. It means that we stay on the altar. You remain there even when you want to take back control of your own life. This is not the idea of legalistically eliminating things from your life, but it is an offering of your whole life. The old imagery here is the sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament. The killing of something valuable is a way to seek mercy and forgiveness. But Paul's point is that the sacrifice of atonement has already been made in Christ Jesus, and now... The worship of believers is not that we just kill something to show a devotion and receive mercy because we've already received mercy, but then we express our worship in the fact that we give ourselves. My life is completely yours, a living sacrifice. And like I said, this means you don't take yourself back off the altar. When it gets uncomfortable, when it becomes a challenge, when we think, ah, that's not really how my plan was going to work out, God— We don't take ourselves off the altar, but we remain a living sacrifice. Jesus would tell us in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As Jesus is saying this, he's telling his followers that if you really want to follow me, you've got to sacrifice. You've got to allow something in you to die before you can truly live. You've got to place yourself, your rights, your desire to be your own boss on the altar and say, it's not my grip that I'm going to hold on to, but I am completely yours. This is what Paul did in Acts 20, 24. He says, but I do not count my life as of any value Nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul reached a point where he said, it's all my life my whole body, a living sacrifice. I, I don't count my life of any value except for the fact that God wants to use these very short breaths that he's given me for his glory and for his kingdom to expand. And look at the life of Paul. And now that there's churches all over the world that are meeting because he was a missionary that said, you know what, my life is not gonna be, it's not gonna be my own. I'm not gonna keep a grip on it, but I'm gonna give all of myself. I'm gonna present my life as a living sacrifice so that my life can be used to further the kingdom of God. My body for his glory. As Paul writes about sexual morality in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. My body for his glory. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I'm an ESV guy, but I, I, don't, I don't think this is the right word. The word means logical. It's your logical worship. Like, it, in considering all of these things, like, the only logical response, the only spiritual response, the only logical response is your whole self. In light of what Jesus has done on your behalf, he deserves all of you. The only logical expression of worship is totally sacrificing oneself and devoting ourselves to God. It is a spiritual act of worship. It's a gospel-centered life that is a sacrificial life. You can't have a gospel-centered life if you're not sacrificial. Because the gospel centers on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So therefore, a gospel-centered life that's centered on Jesus Christ is one that sacrifices self for the glory of God. Christ came to save sinners and give up his life for them as a sacrifice. Therefore, as a believer, my only logical response is to give up my life for him as I live out my days on this earth. Let me ask you, if you come to a point where it just makes sense to worship God with every beat of your heart. Listen, singing songs is great. And I, I value corporate worship. I value it. I think that as the saints gather together together, and they sing songs that edify one another and and glorify God, and we sing about the truths of who Jesus Christ is, that it penetrates deep in our heart. Those truths are like take-home theology. So it matters what you sing, because you're going to be singing it later, right? He's going to keep going through your brain. But he's not talking about just singing songs corporately. He's not singing about... He's not, he's not talking about how you worship in the car and some of you, you crank up the radio and you belt it out as you're going and no one can hear you, but they just see your mouth just going. Maybe your hands leave the wheel every once in a while. You're just testifying as you're going down the road. That's worship. That's great worship. But he's talking about the sacrifice, the sacrifice of giving your every bit to him. Every moment of the day. I lay myself on the altar to be at the disposal of Jesus Christ because he laid himself down for me. The Christian life, number two, is one of spiritual renewal. So how do we become living sacrifices? He answers this and begins to answer this in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. Do not be conformed. Did you know the world seeks to conform us into a mold? The world is seeking to form us and to mold us, and it's doing it with this ever-increasing self-motivated immorality and idolatry. The world is trying to form you and fit you into a mold that looks like everything else. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Conformed is to form according to a pattern or mold, to fashion alike, to conform to the same pattern outwardly. The meaning is to form or mold one's behavior in accordance with a particular pattern or set of standards. And this is what the world is trying to do. It's trying to conform us. But the Spirit and the Word of God transforms us. They're different words for a reason. Transformation is the... The meaning of changing into another form is the term from which we get the, the term metamorphosis, which is, the, as the biology denotes, the amazing change of a caterpillar into a butterfly. That it goes into the cocoon and it becomes some mushy, gross substance and then reforms itself into something beautiful. The Word of God and the Spirit of God wants us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world to be transformed from the inside out. That there would be a change that takes place. So do not be conformed to this world. Let's talk about this world for just a second. William McDonald says that the world as used here means the society or system that man has built in order to make himself happy without God. It is a kingdom that is antagonistic to God. It means that there's a world out there and a system out there that's trying to to mold you into a pattern of finding happiness and joy and peace apart from God. And as I explain that, it should be fairly obvious that that's what the world is doing. That it is not pushing you towards God, but it's pushing you away from God. Trench's synonyms of New Testament says, This world is that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations. At any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitutes a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere, which at every moment of our lives we inhale again to inevitably exhale. You can't even put your finger on what the world's ideas, maxims, speculations, impulses, aims are. It's always changing. Have you noticed? And all of it's changing is always leading away from God towards self. It is a world mindset that wants to form you into a pattern that says me first. What I desire first. You can't tell me that it's wrong because it's right for me. This is the world's pattern that people are being formed into. And it's not just outside the walls. It's also inside the walls of the church that as we more and more listen to what the world says, we more and more as the church see ourselves becoming more and more accustomed to the patterns of this world. Oh, that's not that big of a deal, is it? But it's my body for his glory. To be conformed to this world is to fall into a pattern of life. And a belief system that seeks the gratification of self, independent of God. Listen, this is how you can know if you're beginning to be conformed into the pattern of this world—that you are falling into a pattern of life, or a belief system that seeks gratification of self, independent from God. You know what? This makes me happy. This. This fills me. This is what I need. And it's to, be molded, it's to be molded into a person who perverts intellectual understanding to aid oneself toward a self-centered, self-pleasing, self-indulgent, self-concerned, and totally depraved mind and lifestyle. What does it mean to be conformed into the pattern of this world? It means to be molded into a person who perverts intellectual understanding. To aid oneself towards a self-centered, self-pleasing, self-indulgent, self-concerned, and totally depraved mind and lifestyle. Have you seen how the world, in all its intelligence, has now shifted that to try to, to try to push it towards all selfishness? This is the pattern of the world. As Augustine put it a long, long time ago, before all the things we're dealing with today, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies itself, the latter in the Lord. Many, sad to say, reside in the earthly city of self-love. Sad to say that there are many who even know Christ, who have decided to set up camp in a city of self-love, in a pattern, and a behavior, and a mindset that says, you know what, this, this is good for me, this works for me. And before you know it, you're eliminating God from your life to pursue self. This is not to lay yourself on the altar, is it? This is to be conformed to a pattern of the world. First John two fifteen through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a matter of who we love. You see, the world is subtly and intentionally discipling us and our children. It is subtly creeping into our homes to conform us into a pattern and an image that it agrees with. It is constantly giving us its maxims, its propaganda, its opinions for its purposes. Every day as we turn on our TV or log on to our favorite social media app, we are met face-to-face with a hundred disciples all trying to conform us into something whether it's an Instagram influencer or a movie star, whether it's a professional athlete or it's just a peer teammate, whether it's a college professor or a teacher, whether it's a superhero movie that you think is okay or it's a cartoon that you think's okay for your kids to watch, they're all teaching us to be their followers and their fans by the word and example that they are giving to shape us and mold us, conform us into a world's pattern. Now let me stop and just say I'm not being legalistic here. I, I would like to think that I'm the least legalistic person in this room. <laughs> may not be true, but I would like to think that. So I'm not talking about, oh, all those things are evil. We need to go home and smash our TVs and, you know, have a revival. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is we need to be aware that there is a pattern of the world that is always easing its way in, subtly teaching, subtly molding, trying to convince us that there is a happiness and a joy in self apart from God. And it's always discipling us. But we have been set free if we are in Christ. Galatians 1 Three through five, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. If you are in Christ, you have been set free. He wants to transform you from the inside out by giving you the indwelling power and presence of his Holy Spirit. It is not a legalistic response. It is a, I need Jesus response. I need his spirit. I need more of him to transform me according to the will of God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In fact, Jesus didn't tell us to run away. He prayed for us in His high priestly prayer in John 17, 14 through 20. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they, have, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into this world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is Jesus praying for us. That those of us who have believed because of their word that we would not be taken out of this world, but we would be sent into this world, not conformed to the pattern of this world, but we would go as lights into a dark world. What a beautiful picture that is, that we need to be not conformed, but transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. A transformed life only happens with a renewed mind. And repentance is the change of mind and thus leads to a change in direction. As we find ourselves in a world, we are met with the opposition of always needing to be repentant of the things that we've taken in that have caused us to think otherwise to the Word of God. And so we repent. And when we repent and we turn, it changes the directions of our life. So a renewed mind comes from a repentant heart. So every time we see our minds being influenced into thinking something contrary to the Word of God and our actions following a pattern that are contrary to the Word of God, what are we to do? We are to repent for the renewing of our mind. I know this is wrong, according to your Word, and I repent of it, and I don't want to accept it in my life. And I want to go in a different direction. Repentant hearts and renewed minds are the products of a life presented to God as a living sacrifice. Stay on the altar. We have to stay in the mindset of repentance. Out of our logical worship, we are taking our normal, selfish, and self-centered human way of thinking that was conformed by this world, and we are allowing God's Word and God's Spirit within us to change us and renew our way of thinking to produce in us a life of repentance. It's not enough to know the Word of God. We must allow the Word of God to change us, to transform us, to penetrate deep into our hearts and minds, like a double-edged sword to cut between bone and marrow. It has to convict us of things in our life that we know should not be there. Dale Moody once said, the Scriptures are not given for our information, but for our transformation. People can study the Word of God without... And they can study the Word of God. They can have knowledge without it ever penetrating their heart. And the fact is the church is full of people who have been raised in church. They know the Scriptures. They can tell you the Bible stories. But they are still fighting, being conformed into the very patterns of this world. We must be transformed. And in order for you and I to have a renewed mind, it is imperative that we have a continual influx of the Word of God into the mind so that it can combat the influx of the world's discipling propaganda and maxims. I know that's a wordy sentence, but I just want to say it this way. If we are recognizing that the world is trying to conform us and is always trying to disciple us into a certain image and pattern, then the only way to combat that is to constantly allow ourselves to be filled with the Word of God for the transformation of our hearts. Not just for information, but God, I come to you today with a repentant, humble heart, and I need you to change me from the inside out. I need to be transformed with a renewal of my mind so that I see things through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of this world. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The more our minds are informed by the Word of God, the more we are able to discern the will of God and recognize what is good, acceptable, and perfect for a child of God. R.C. Sproul again said this, If we are not growing in sanctification, seeking God's will about such things is worthless. God's will for each of us is that we grow into spiritual maturity, that our lives become more fully set apart and consecrated by the Holy Spirit and that our minds are changed. After that, we will be able to tell what is pleasing to God. Then we will be able to know what he wants us to do, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is the will of God according to Scripture? I'm going to give you three, just three. There's a lot more, but I'm just going to give you three. To live a life that avoids sexual immorality and impurity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. I'll just stop there. You want to know what the will of God is? It's to abstain. It's to offer your body to, to be sanctified. The world is teaching otherwise. But this is what God's will is for our life. Number two, to live a life that carefully walks in an evil world with wisdom and understanding. Ephesians 5. 15 through 17, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk with wisdom and discernment in an evil age. And three, to live a life that corporately worships by edifying others, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 16. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. The will of God is revealed in the word of God. And it is fulfilled in a life that has presented itself as a living sacrifice to God. As we think about this word transformed, it shows up one other place in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As you think about this idea of renewing your mind and this transforming that God wants to do in your life, I want you to understand that it is a process of sanctification. It doesn't happen overnight. It is full of hills and valleys, ups and downs, and loops and roller coasters and all kinds of things in this life. But it is one degree of glory to the next as we continually present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God as our spiritual worship. Three, the Christian life is one of sober recognition. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. As John MacArthur said, the Christian's proper attitude is humility. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Lack of that foundational virtue causes many believers to stumble. No matter how well grounded we may be in God's word, how theologically sound we may be, or how vigorously we may seek to serve him, our gifts will not operate so that our lives can be a spiritual be spiritually productive until self is set aside as we think about these verses we'll get into them more next week but I want to end with this idea of humility this is the approach of placing yourself on the altar it's not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought it's not thinking you know what I'm a pretty good person I'm not, I'm not as bad as the other people around or, or thinking you know I've, I've got this I'm, I'm doing this I'm doing this but it's to humbly submit yourself before God because you know that there are always areas of your life that you need to relinquish your grip on. And so this morning, I'm going to ask that you respond logically. I always say, will you stand, will you respond? And I always invite you to sing a song as we're all looking at our watch and trying to decide what we're going to eat for lunch. But I'm going to ask you to respond. Respond. What is your logical, spiritual, reasonable response of worship to a God who has done all of this for you? You only know when you humbly approach the throne, humbly bowing before him, saying, my life, I'm relinquishing the grip today. And I'm, writing a, I'm giving you a blank check, God, my life in your hands. Can you pray that today?